Welcome to this presentation from the Downey Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are located in the greater Los Angeles area at 9820 Lakewood Boulevard in Downey, California. We would love to have you worship with us any Saturday you are in our area. Today's message is Urban Legends of Christmas. Now, here's Pastor Chris. Of all the Christmas hymns, that is my favorite. Thank you for honoring my request, Bill. And as well, we're going to talk about that later today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for all that you have done. And Lord, as we are in this uh, Christmas season, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. As a pastor, I've had to make many, many, many hours of commuting in traffic. I love traffic. Okay, I'm just kidding. I hate traffic. I really hate traffic. I know the 210 so well. I know when it's going to bunch up and when it's not. I know what times and, and, and days that it's worse. I know on Sabbath it will take me 25 to 26 minutes to get from my home to the office. During the week, I know it will take me about 35 minutes to get here and on home on average, depending on if it's before 1 o'clock, maybe 38 minutes. If it's after 2 o'clock, 40 to 45 minutes. Traffic. So what do I do to bide the time? Well, now uh, I actually listen to a lot of podcasts or I listen to books because I want to be able to make sure I'm strengthening my brain and my mind and and uh, continuously being challenged. But from time to time, and this is what I did for many years, I listened to sports talk radio. And uh, one of my shows, the Petros and Money Show, uh, Petros, uh, very, um, let's just say, he's a very interesting character. But one of the things that I always remembered was he would talk about the best breakfast burrito in Redondo Beach at Fanny's. I don't know if any of you have been there. So after many years and trials and tribulations, I finally, finally got to go to Fanny's. Uh, I had to take my, one of my friends to the airport early to LAX, and when I dropped him off, I drove down. It took me about 16 minutes to get down to Redondo Beach. I checked the surf because I love to surf, and uh, it was way too cold to surf. So I decided I would get there just as they were opening up. And I got there maybe about probably 10 minutes before, and I noticed there was already a couple of cars in the parking lot. And at 6.58, I looked. Everyone was still in their car. But at 6.59, people were opening their doors, and they were walking to the door. So I got out as fast as I could because I wanted to be first in line. I didn't think it would be this popular. And when I got the door, I pulled it, and I was disappointed because it was still locked. I wanted to be first in line. And then I saw uh, one of the attendants come in, open the door. I smiled. She had this huge, big smile on her face, very welcoming. And I'm, man, I thought this is a really nice place. I walked in, and I got to the line first. Already, when they opened, they had five customers right off the bat. And over the couple of next uh, five, ten minutes, people would come in, and they made a ton of orders. People were calling in. This place was busy. Man, 
Petros is right. This is a really great place. And I looked and I saw on the griddle. And I saw, you know, those pocket, uh, the, the potato squares, the hash browns, that when you deep fry them, you get that crunch factor. Oh, so good. They chopped it up, they put it on the grill, and they mixed the eggs in it, and they put it in a tortilla, they put some cheese, and they put some legit, not cheap salsa, but legit homemade salsa. And when I bit into that burrito, I'm not going to lie, I have a new favorite breakfast burrito. Oh, I know. Oh, it's so tempting. Uh, this week, I will. It's, it's enough to where I will leave my office sometime this week to go because I have to get another one. As you can tell, I'm passionate about food. It was literally one of the best breakfast burritos I have ever had because when you bite into it, it's just all of the taste and all the flavor, just it hits you and it's like, whoa. And then it just, it's so flavorful. It's so good. I've been waiting for years for this moment and it exceeded my expectations. You know, I, I also think about when, we, when I look at the gospel, especially as Adventists, we have been waiting for many, many, many years for Christ to come. It's in our name. We are seventh day. We, we worship on Sabbath, but especially the second half, the advent, the coming of God. Thankfully enough, though, we're referring to the second advent because Jesus has already come into this world. And the beautiful thing is that in the first time, we find ourselves... Um, in the book of Luke, we talked about Matthew, and we'll come back to it again, but today we're going to focus a little more on Luke. Now, this week, I was walking, and I came across this nativity scene. Today, we're going to talk about urban legends of Christmas. Some of you are going to be very happy, and maybe some of you are going to be skeptical and sad and wondering, well, what do I believe in now? There is a point to this, all right? Urban legends of Christmas. There's a lot of mistruths that we think are true, but really aren't, especially when we read Scripture. So I, I, I was walking, I think it was Tuesday night, I took this picture of it, and whenever I see a nativity scene, I, I always feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside because growing up, uh, my family and I, we would drive around neighborhoods and we would look at Christmas lights, and then we would sometimes see the nativity scene. But yet, when we look at the nativity scene factually, it's inaccurate in a number of things. So today, we're going to burst the bubble on a few of these things, all right? I, I'm sorry, I hate to do this to you, but uh, let's get Scripture on path. So, in, in the book of Luke... Chapter 1. We're going to go through Luke's version. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus, who's Caesar? He's Caesar of Rome, right? Head on, Joe. He issues a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And a census is basically, he wants to know how many people are in his kingdom, all right? And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. 
man, that must have been a very big pain because, you know, nowadays it's so simple. Everything is online. They keep track of records of where you live nowadays. But back in the day, you had to literally get up and go back home to where you were and register yourself. So Mary and Joseph, to make the trek, it was probably about 70 miles. Uh, this is not was not planned in, but as well. You know, when we think about Mary and Joseph going back to Bethlehem, what conjures up in your head as far as how they got there? Mary riding a donkey, right? Go through scripture, though. But is she riding on a donkey? Uh, doesn't say. Okay, we're going to get to that a little bit later. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the town, the Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. We've also been talking about four important women in the life of Jesus, right? We talked about Bathsheba, David, talked about Ruth, and then uh, as well, his line went through Bethlehem. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified." But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will great, be great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly the great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And while the angels had left him and gone into heaven, the the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they'd spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were what? Amazed. And what the shepherds said to them, But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and pondered them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, one of the assumptions, one of the things that we assume uh, sometimes is that, number one, December 25 is the birth of Jesus. Okay? Now, in Scripture, as we have just read, Does it say that Jesus is born on December 25? No. We do not know exactly when Jesus was born, okay? Uh, Most likely, though, at least when I was, uh, what I've been told is he was probably most likely born during uh, the time of early fall. Now, think about this as well. In winter, as you've probably experienced, if you were walking out uh, last night, it was a bit chilly, right? Even this morning, and especially the last couple of days, because I was walking, I've been walking a mile every day, and somehow I always tend to forget that I have to walk, or I'm just putting it off to the last second. And it's been like 46 to 48 degrees. And I know, boo-hoo, everybody who's in the East Coast and, and Montana, you know, they're pouring cry and shame for us, right? We got a good. It's not ice here. 
but it's still cold to us. Would it have been practical for Mary and Joseph to be traveling in the, in the middle of December? Most likely not, okay? Um, most likely, he probably was born during a time where it was a little warmer, more suitable for travel. And as they traveled over the 70 miles, that's not a short trek back in the day, especially if you're pregnant. And then the next assumption that we have about uh, the nativity scene, let me just make sure we all get that, okay? So you got the wise men, you have the shepherds, you have at the very top, it's not a very good, uh, you can't really see well, but there's a star up top, okay? And then you have the sheep and the camels and Mary and Joseph and uh, Jesus in the manger. The next thing that we find is that we assume that Mary and Joseph were turned away by the innkeeper, right? This is a popular thing where Jesus and Mary rudely turned away. But in Scripture, does it say they were turned away by an innkeeper? No mention of an innkeeper. In fact, uh, it just says... She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, guest room, the Greek word is kataluma. All right, everybody say it. Kataluma. kataluma. All right, means guest room. Doesn't necessarily mean stable, which we automatically assume, especially when we're thinking about the nativity scene. It could have been, uh, he, he could have been in a cave, but more than likely, um, it could have also meant... Uh, Kataluma also refers to a room. And more often than not, especially when it was cold, sometimes the animals would stay inside the room with the humans. And in order to be able to feed and also water the animals, you got to have a manger, right? So how convenient. Place Jesus. Now, the next thing is... We assume that, yeah, Jesus was born in a barn or a stable. Fact of the matter is, uh, he could have also been a guest room. The point I'm trying to make is this. We don't want to assume, and it's the importance of we have to read Scripture for ourselves. Amen? Otherwise, we could easily be led astray. Next thing that we find is a star was shining over Jesus the night he was born. And when we look at the scene, we saw all of the the Magi, we saw all the shepherds and Jesus and Mary and Joseph. But the fact of the matter is, if we truly read Matthew's account, the Magi actually don't go to Jesus until sometime after he was born. In fact... Uh, when when the Magi go to Jesus, uh, when they go to Herod, they find that he had, um, they knew that he had been alive and they were searching for the new king. And when Herod hears that there's a new king, any any person who is a threat to their 
throne, what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to try to eliminate that threat. So he brings the Magi in, and he asks, hey, where, where do you think they are? And so they get together. He talks to the Pharisees. He talks to the Sadducees probably separately because, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't always get along because they're so Sadducee. Some of you will get that. My wife is looking at me in shame. (laughs) I love you. So they find that Jesus was probably born in Bethlehem. So Herod's, he sends them on a mission to find them. When they finally locate, he wants to make sure that he's told, right? But he tells the Magi that, hey, I want to go and I want to worship him too. But secretly, he wants to eliminate this threat. And so the Magi go and they're warned in a dream. They send uh, Jesus up. God sends them on a different route. And when Herod finds out that he's deceived, what does he order? All of the young boys between all up to the age of how old? Two, to be killed. Number one, he wants to make sure he doesn't take any chances. And as well, it has to have been some time that the Magi were following the star. Or it may have even, uh, some say it could have been a supernova. We don't know exactly because we weren't there. Another thing related to the wise men as well is that Jesus received three gifts from three wise men. But when we look to the scriptures, especially in Matthew, how many wise men does it say showed up or Magi? It doesn't say. It could have been three Magi. It could have been 30 Magi or wise men. Same word. So, looking at the context okay, is another illustration where we sometimes... It's easy for us to assume and keep repeating the patterns, and it's important that we don't take Scripture for granted. Now, at this point, some of you are probably feeling maybe a little lost, and Pastor Chris, where are you going with this? You're ruining my Christmas. Okay? The fact of the matter is, as a pastor, it would behoove me to make sure that you're all properly informed. But there is still good news about this. So the question that some of you are asking, should we even celebrate celebrate Christmas? I want to say unequivocally, equivocally, unequivocally, absolutely yes. Because at the end of the day, what is Christmas? At its essence, it is God coming down to earth and living and being amongst God's children. That is the good news. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I know there's also some questions about celebrating how we celebrate, okay? For instance, we have poinsettias, we have Christmas trees there and back. Some of you have asked me this week, is it appropriate for us to be able to celebrate with a Christmas tree. And my first question is, what's your intention and your motive? And a lot of times, some individuals refer, for instance, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10, where it says, 
Hear the word of the Lord, which speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, don't learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the handyman, of, of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. When you read that, what does it sound like? It sounds like a Christmas tree, right? But just like any time we read scripture, is it not important that we do our due diligence and look at the whole context of the passage? Because this is just five, five verses. When we look at the whole context, we actually find that there's a bigger meaning. So verses 3 and 4, it, it, you could say, hey, it sounds like a Christmas tree, right? They go to the forest, they cut the tree down, and they decorate it with gold and silver. But if you continue on and you read at the whole context, it's actually talking about how they're making a carved image or an idol from a tree. And here, uh, Jeremiah is talking about how a woodworker, uh, the work of the hands of the workmen. So there, but the, in verse 8 it says, but they are altogether a dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. And later it talks about how uh, false gods have not made the earth, but who has made the earth? God, the creator verses 9 through 11. And then verses 14 and 15 talk about how idols and images are worthless and ultimately are made a mockery. In fact, you even can look at Isaiah in verse uh, chapters 40 and 44. So when we look at Jeremiah, we have to look at the context, and we have to remember as well, when did people start celebrating Christmas? hundreds if not thousands of years after the book of Jeremiah was written, right? Long after Christ's death and resurrection, long after the Bible was even written, as a day to honor his birth. And yet even the the idea of, of decorating a tree came still much, much, much later. So, are these verses talking about a Christmas tree or making idols, a carved image? So when we think about it, yeah, it would be good as well to look at the how Christmas trees continue, more, go more in-depth. But over time, we found, I've, I've found, and as I've talked to others as well, sometimes meanings change. So think about words, for instance. Oh, boy. The word bay. When you think bay, what do you think? All of you younger, you're you're thinking of maybe somebody that you like, right? When I think of the word bay, I think of uh, a body of water, right? But now bay is short for baby. Oh, boy. So we also think of when I was younger. This is going to show how old I am. Uh, people would use the word bad. And when you say somebody like, oh, you're bad, like, oh, what did I do, right? 
Uh, but for instance, uh, somebody would say, uh, think of a popular celebrity and say, oh, that person, he is so bad. I mean, he's so cool. He's so hip. He's so awesome, right? Words over time change. Probably, honestly, one of the biggest uh, changes is the word gay. Younger people, you associate it in a way that if you were older, you would realize that gay used to mean happy and jovial, right? Words over time can change. Over time, things meaning can change. So, I'm going to read to you something as well that blew my mind. Did not know this was written until a couple of weeks ago. But let me just read this, okay? I, actually, hold on. Let me, let me, before I go to this point. Now, Jeremiah actually does have a good point too. It's important that we not make idols out of things. Is it possible to make Christmas an idol? I'm going to say absolutely yes, okay? That is true. So I'm not saying that Christmas trees are bad, but I'm also not saying that they're great. And we're going to get to this point right here, okay? Because somebody spells it out really well. We are now nearing the close of another year, and shall we not make these festal days of opportunities in which to bring to God our offerings? I cannot say sacrifices, for we shall only be rendering to God that which is his already, and which he has only entrusted to us, he shall call for it. God would be well pleased if on Christmas each church would have a Christmas tree on which shall be hung offerings, great and small, for these houses of worship. Letters of inquiry have come, asked, come to us asking, shall we have a Christmas tree? Will it not be like the world? We only we answer, you can make it like the world if you have a disposition to do so, or you can make it as unlike the world as possible. There is no particular sin in selecting a fragrant evergreen and placing it in our churches. But the sin lies in the motive which prompts to actions and the use which is made of the gifts placed on the tree. The tree may be as tall and its branches as wide as shall best suit the occasion, but let its boughs be laden with the gold and silver fruit of your beneficence and present this to him as your Christmas gift. Let your donations be sanctified by prayer and let the fruit upon this consecrated tree be applied towards removing the debts from our houses of worship at Battle Creek, Michigan, and Oakland, California. A word to the wise is sufficient. Review and Herald, December 11, 1879. Those of you who have no idea who I'm talking about, I'm referring to Ellen White. What is the context and our motive? One of the reasons why I think that we have these decorations up is because for many of us, we grew up with a Christmas tree, right? And for sometimes a Christmas tree, when you look at it in the gathering, uh, the, the decorations brings a sense of comfort, of warmth. When we have people come in, we want them to be able to feel comfortable. Now, it's very easy for us, too. We could have gotten real Christmas trees, and we could have doctored them up and made them super expensive, and we could have taken church resources to do that, right? But we didn't. We're being practical. What is your motive in how you celebrate Christmas? Is it to spend as much money to go out and have fun with your friends and make a fool of yourself? 
Or is it to truly and nobly honor the one who has come into this world? Even Ellen White says, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a Christmas tree, but what is your intention and your motive? Is it to glorify yourself, to make yourself feel so good and so puffed up that I was able to do this? Or is it the real reason we are here to praise the Lord and thank God that he has come into this world on our behalf? And I want to challenge you as well. You know, I... Another, uh, because I was challenged this week uh, about this too. Why do we wait one day a year to remember God's goodness that he came into this world? Should we not do that every day? So I'm not saying we should have Christmas just once a year. We don't call it Christmas. Just remember that God, (laughs) remind ourselves every day that God came into this world as a babe dependent on Mary and Joseph for food, for shelter, for protection. I'm not going to lie. Why would I want to leave heaven? But God, in his infinite wisdom and love and devotion, came into this world. That is the true meaning of Christmas. And in this season, if that is missing, we need to check ourselves. Man, What am I doing? Am I honoring God with everything that I'm doing or am I honoring myself? And maybe even this too. Ellen White talks about maybe serving, especially when she talks about financial gifts. Let's take it on a more practical note. What if instead of getting gifts for everybody, what if you maybe donate that money to a project, whether it's in the church or or something in the community that you can benefit others? Because ultimately, God did not take, right? God gave. What if we as well focused Christmas towards in some way within uh, personally or within your homes or maybe even in the future as a church, how can we give? Because God did not come to take but to give his life for those he loved. Giving. How can we serve and be a blessing to others and glorify God? As a reminder, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, talking to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their what? From their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had given, had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Lord, come. True meaning of Christmas is that Jesus came into this world to be with us, to live among us, ultimately die for us. But the story does not end there because, especially as Seventh day Adventists, we have a mission and a calling to go out and inform the world that Jesus is coming one more time. And that coming will be better than any breakfast burrito. 
that I will enjoy. Praise the Lord. I love breakfast burritos, but I long for the second coming even more. So may you, as you get together, and as well, parents, maybe rather than just giving kids your gifts, giving gifts, help your children to find a way to learn how to give, whether it be to each other or to others outside of your home. O come, O come, Emmanuel. May God please come soon. That is our prayer. You have come already once, and we long for that second coming. And now, Lord, as we continue, be with us. Warm our hearts. And yet, Lord, as well, I want to pray a special prayer as well for perhaps those who are not going to have a loved one this coming Christmas that they have spent their life with, Lord. For those who are grieving, for those who have lost a loved one, for those who are in the midst of change, and for those, especially those who are alone, Lord, we pray that you will be with them. Holidays are a special, challenging, challenging time. Yet, Lord, may we be the family for those who are seeking love and redemption. And yet, Lord, as well, thank you again for all that you've done. Thank you, Emmanuel. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been blessed by this message from the Downey Seventh-day Adventist Church. You can find more messages at www.downeychurch.org. God bless.